Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be looking at the formation, the anatomy, uh, the, the bringing forth, the implementation of a proof text, how a proof text is, is identified, born, and brought to fruition. And we're going to be using 1 John 3.20 for this. This is a very quote-unquote classic proof text that critics of open theism will be quick to point to. This will be their first one. So <clears throat> if it's their first one, this is the one that they think gives greatest weight to their claim. These, this is in their head. If, if that's the first thing they throw out, they believe that this is their best proof text. And we're going to take a look at this and we're going to read it. We'll, we'll read it right now, actually. 1 John 3.20, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. A lot of things are missing there. Knows all things, is that all present things, all past things? Is it that a generality? There's no mechanism. I don't see a mechanism. How does God know? If God receives knowledge of things through vision, that's going to be an incredible problem for the classic view of omniscience, in which God's omniscience is eternal, ungenerated, non-discursive. He doesn't receive it from outside himself, and it's uh, one simple knowledge of all things. But that's not necessarily what this is describing if the mechanism is vision. The mechanism is not listed. It's not even clear if this is talking about all future things to ever exist because we're talking about God knowing the hearts of people, which is present knowledge, which is present knowledge. So a lot of things missing there. And and the funny thing that, that's hilarious to me is my famous Matt Slick story when I, I talked to him about 1 John 3.20, this was his go-to proof text. We turn back one chapter, very same verse, 1 John 2.20, but you have the anointing of the Holy One and you know all things. And so human beings are also said to know all things. But the people who want this as a proof text for their specific theology will point to this and say, this is our proof text. This is our go-to proof text. Uh, this is the first one we're going to throw out to you but it's it's special pleading. They they take it in a very specific way that's not required by the phrase that they don't in a very similar context just the previous chapter. These people are dishonest. They they have no intellectual integrity. They are desperate for proof text. So this is a great great verse to study to see how this came into being as a proof text for God's uh, infinite, ungenerated knowledge of all things. It's non-discursive. That's completely simple and eternal. Uh, this would be a good verse to look at to see the development throughout history. So we have some ways to do this. We have some tools that are available to us. I'm going to turn to the Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs. And uh, they have a little section, a tiny section, very small. I got a bigger section in my work on the omniscience of God. And so their, their first reference to anyone saying some sort of omniscience statement uh, comes from AD 150. He knows all things beforehand and he is acquainted with what is in our hearts, Second Clement. We don't see any references there. We certainly don't see any references to 1 John 3.20. And we could go on, Clement of Alexandria, we could see uh, Lacanatius, and uh, he doesn't actually reference it either. So we have to move our search elsewhere. We're not finding it in our Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs. So we, we, we have other, other things at our disposal. We have Clement of Alexandria. 
actually, some of his commentaries on this. And here's a good section where he talks about this verse, this chapter. And if he were to make the case that God knows all things past, present, and future in one eternal and simple act, that's non-discursive. Uh, this would be the place that he could have done that, but he doesn't do that. I'm not saying uh, Clement of Alexandria didn't believe that, but he doesn't use this verse to make that point. He says, if we assure our heart, let it be before him, because if our heart thinks ill of us, accuse us within that we do not the thing that the mind ought to be done withal. He's saying if we don't do what we think we should do, greater is God than our heart and known as all things. Thou hidest your heart from man, hide it from God if you can. How shall you hide it from him to whom it is said by a sinner, fear and confessing? So he's basically talking about present knowledge that that our heart, he's actually doing a contextual analysis that is pretty good, that the, the context is about God judging our current state of our heart. And God knowing all things is saying that God knows our deep, dark secrets that we probably don't want God to even know. But God is greater than our hearts, and he could uh, delve fur further into our lives and know the things that we don't know, even about ourselves. Our, our heart our heart might uh, lie to us in, with with our conscience. We might say, oh, that's not so bad. And we, we, we're rationalizing creatures, human beings. And so we might rationalize away our sin. But God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. He'll condemn us for our sins that we don't even want to acknowledge. And so Clement, he's on to something here. Uh, he He's doing a good analysis of this. And he doesn't talk about this as being a proof text for ungenerated, non-discursive knowledge of all things and one simple act eternally. Uh, nothing like that in here. So this would have been the place to do it. Catholics like to go through the early church fathers and they have a lot of good tools and resources that categorizes and lists all, all these different references and they put full texts online for free. Uh, Catholics are very good at doing great things in the world of scholarship. And so they got this search engine in which you could put in references. 1 John 3.20, we see the Hermes, pastor of Hermes, shepherd of Hermes, uh, does give a reference, nothing about omniscience. Clement, we talked about Clement already. We look over here, Tertullian, he doesn't really use it for omniscience of all things. Down here, more Tertullian. Augustine, maybe Augustine, because Augustine definitely believed in this idea of omniscience that we are criticizing in open theism. Augustine here basically states the same arguments that Clement does. Augustine actually does this quite often where he's quoting Origen or people who preceded him, and he doesn't actually cite his references. He's not very good at citations, and so people have to understand both works to see when and where he's drawing on previous authors and speakers and things like that. He, he might not be drawing off, but uh, basically the same argument that this this chapter, this verse is about our hearts. We need to make sure our hearts are pure. God can read our hearts. Not about eternal, ungenerated knowledge of all things in a non-discursive and simple act. That's that's not that's not how he's using this. this is not a proof text. So the early church fathers, we see fairly clearly, they don't use this as a proof text. And it's ubiquitous in today's world where everyone uses this as a proof text. So where does this flip happen? We can see if uh, Aquinas, he might be an interesting person to 
look to and see how he uses this verse. He has a reference to 1 John 3.20, but it's about knowledge of God and God being greater than our hearts is what he, he focuses on. He doesn't use it about omniscience. So he's not even a person to proof, proof textize this book. He doesn't turn this into a proof text for his definition of omniscience. So now we have to start uh, scrounging through various systematic theologies to see kind of the origin of this idea. Um, one systematic theology, early systematic theology, early as in the 1600s or so, is by Charnook. And he uses 1 John 3.20 in what seems to be this type of a per perfection knowledge type of way. He says, the condemnation of us by our own hearts and when none in the world can condemn us renders it legible that there is one greater than our hearts in respect of knowledge who knows all things. Conscious would be a vain principle and stingless without this. It would be an easy matter to silence all its accusations and mockingly laugh in the face of its severest frowns. What need any trouble themselves if none knows their crimes but themselves? Concealing sins, gnawing at conscience, are arguments of God's omniscience of all past and present actions. Present and past actions. Uh, he doesn't even actually use it for the future, but basically he's arguing for perfection and knowledge for the sake of justice, that we're judged rightly because of perfect knowledge. So now let's turn to Calvin. Calvin has uh, detailed commentaries on all sorts of verses and chapters and and very very long-winded explanations and commentary so let's turn there and see what he says he seems to be taking the augustine and clement angle at that this verse that this is about present knowledge uh, calvin sounds like an open theist he says this he says god is greater than our hearts with the reference to judgment that is because he sees much more keenly than we do and searches more minutely and judges more severely. For this reason, Paul says that though he was not conscious of wrong himself, yet he was not therefore justified. For he knew that however carefully attentive he was to his office, he erred in many things, and through inadvertence was ignorant of mistakes which God perceived. So God searches and knows more minutely. I think I think John Calvin's on to something here. I think I think he's doing some good work. But he doesn't take it as a proof text for his specific version of omniscience. And his language contradicts his metaphysics, as we see often in Calvinists. There are other systematic theologies. There's, there's one website I saw that had all these Calvinist reform systematic theologies by year, and they have all the old texts that are all scanned. And I did find a reference in one of those. I didn't pull that reference out. So it started to be used around 15 to 1600 in some capacity as a proof text for this ungenerated, eternal, non-discursive type of knowledge. Uh, but before that, it seems to be very absence from this. Con the two concepts were disjointed. Not that they didn't believe it. Not that uh, Augustine and Clement of Alexandria didn't believe in this type of simple knowledge, one that's required to have by a simple God. They they believed in that, but they didn't believe that this was a proof text. They didn't they didn't reference this as a proof text. They could have believed it was a proof text, but they never referenced this as a proof text for that idea. So where does it come from? Modern systematic theologies, which are more biblically focused, who want to show support for their position from the Bible. Oh, we we see it. Uh, is it is it John Fram? Let's pull up John Fram. 
Here's John Frame in his Systematic Theology and an Introduction to Christian Belief. He just lists a whole bunch of proof texts that he thinks uh, support his views. And 1 John 3.20 is just lumped in in like a shotgun blast of proof texts. And so these people in the modern world, they, they care about finding support for their positions in the Bible. And so they go on a scavenger hunt in the Bible. This this is how this proof text is born. They look in throughout the Bible. They're looking very carefully. It's like, oh, I really want to set this uh, this as my belief. So where can I find evidence? Oh, 1 John 3.20. Oh, I won't have a detailed discussion about what that verse says and what it means, what the context means, if it even proves the thing that I'm trying to prove. You'll see this often in Calvinist and, and even normal systematic theologies where they will make a claim, they'll reference a verse, um, but then you'll turn to the verse because they don't quote the verse. Quoting the verse next to their claim about the verse would be counterproductive for what they want to do. They don't quote the verse, they'll just reference the verse. You turn to the reference and it says nothing what they're trying to prove from that verse. And here is an example of uh, 1 John 3.20 being just lumped in with a bunch of proof texts for this idea of God's knowledge. The very next paragraph in this systematic theology is on omniscience. You see him talk very detailed about it. You see him quote a whole bunch of other things. And you see him criticize open theists because uh, in modern systematic the theologies, they have to start addressing open theism because it is a real threat to their theology. Someone who actually cares about the Bible more than they do, they have to address and try to put down because their followers their followers still have reverence for the Bible. As uh, remember from that uh, Cheese Wearing Theology blog post that we've covered before, in which uh, a young, naive girl was uh, listening to a lecture about, uh, it was about uh, the Samuel incident in which God repents of making Samuel king. And uh, a biblical scholar stood up and started talking about the actual text of the Bible, about how Characters in the text are not to be trusted as much as God and the narrator. And so if we're showing any priority, it should be to God and the narrator. And the character in the text is actually contextually talking about something else. He's not making metaphysical claims. And then he, the guy was accused of being an open theist sympathizer. This is our level of discourse where theologians who write systematic theologies, they really don't want their people to be reading the Bible. Enough to support their sketchy claims. Well, you, you see, uh, you see a little bit more honest in, in in the claims that they could actually support from the Bible. But these shotgun proof text lists, that is a clear sign that they they don't have any proof text. And the fact that, in my experience, in my debates with these Calvinists, Matt Slick, his go-to proof text, one John three twenty, even though. Uh, it doesn't give any mechanism. The verse doesn't give any mechanism. It's not clear that this verse isn't just a vast generalization. It's not clear that this verse even includes any knowledge of the future. And in context, the exact same phrase is used of human beings. And he just skips right over it without any self-reflection. Zero self-reflection. He still uses that verse to this day, even though it was pointed out to him this problem because he's dishonest. He is a liar. He has no intellectual integrity. So these, you could say something to him, and by the next time you discuss anything with him, it will have faded out of his memory he, because he unfiles it. He doesn't want to consider 
consider the weaknesses of his own position. He wants to keep presenting his position, uh, present it with confidence, even though he knows, he knows in his head that his proof texts do not say what he wants them to say. This is our level of discourse. So briefly summarizing what we have found here is that this 1 John 3.20 never started out as a proof text for omniscience. It wasn't really used in that way until modern times. It's fairly modern systematic theologies, maybe starting to be phased in around the 1600s, 1500s, but there's very scant use and reference to this verse before that time. Maybe someone out there could find something different. Maybe they could interject it, but I didn't find it in Calvin, in Augustine. I didn't find it in Clement. I didn't find it through a reference, charts referencing early church fathers. I don't think it's in the church fathers being used as a proof text for omniscience. Uh, un eternal, ungenerated knowledge of all things and one simple act, uh, timeless. Not that type of knowledge. It's not. It's talking about, people actually contextualize it when talking about it, that this verse is actually about God knowing our current state of our heart, our past actions, and our secret sins, which seems to be the scope of what this verse actually is talking about. So it's it's a little bit funny that ancient theologians in the time of Hellenization would be doing a better contextual job discussing this verse than modern theologians who are desperate for proof texts. It could be, I'll just throw this out there, it could be that the modern theologians are getting more pushback from scholarly individuals caring about the text of the Bible, and those types of people were just ignored, ignored as we, as we see in uh, the works of Augustine and and uh, even in Calvin, he talks about oh those darn open theists out there. Uh, he kind of just ignores them and doesn't deal with their arguments. But uh, I think that's funny. I think that's funny. So this proof text. Is not a proof text and only became a proof text and started to be used as a proof text because they do not have proof texts for their beliefs and so they are willing to take anything not only did it become a proof text but it became their primary lauded vaulted proof text that they use first of all their go-to proof text something that doesn't say anything what they want to try to prove anyways questions comments put that down below thank you for watching